Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Normally, I'm joined by both Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby. Uh, Wayne is, I don't know where he is, he's out there somewhere doing Wayne stuff, but Marty Irby is with me today, and he's always a great addition, so Marty, we're glad to have you here. Uh, Scott Beckstead, who's been a frequent contributor to the show, also with Animal Wellness Action, is here, so uh, always glad to have uh, Scott. So before we get into any of the show itself, we typically turn to Marty for a legislative update. Marty, what's going on on the Hill? Yes, Dennis Miller here live with the weekend update. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I always feel like that, and I've wanted to say that for quite some time. So, Marty, yes, the, the, <laughs> Marty, you ignorant slut. <laughs> um, no, so for our legislative update uh, this week, we've had a ton of stuff going on. Uh, most importantly, we got an amendment to the big infrastructure package that moved through the House of Representatives last week passed by a voice vote with no vocal opposition against the measure, the amendment that Animal Wellness Action conceived, uh, and we've actually been talking about for many years, uh, was introduced by Congressman Troy Carter, a new Democrat that was recently elected from New Orleans, Louisiana, where one of the biggest kill pens in the country is in that state. And this Uh, amendment is so important because it bans the transport of all equines for the purposes of slaughter for human consumption across state and federal lines. So you would not be able to ship a horse uh, across the border for the purposes of slaughter or even from state to state if this gets signed into law. Now, it's not in the Senate companion bill. Uh, That is still fluid. We're still trying to work through what will or will not even be taken up in the Senate. But they have their own bill, and I've been talking with several really top animal uh, legislators that we've worked with for many years in the Senate, and I think we'll have some strong leadership on that front. So we're really excited that we got something passed this early in the Congress, this early in the year, and it was ours. And we worked very, very hard, but we also had a lot of help from some great folks out there, Freddie Hudson with the U.S. Harness Racing Alumni Association, Alondra Stevens with the Horses for Life Foundation, and Stacey Hancock, who's uh, a member of the Thoroughbred Breeding Community, uh, who's raised uh, three Kentucky Derby winners at her farm. So we had over 230 groups, organizations, rescues, and equine businesses support the measure and just appreciate everyone's support. We've also been really uh, putting our nose to the grind on the wild horse front, trying to save the Anaki wild horses out in Utah that are set to be rounded up soon. Uh, Scott Beckstead, who's on here with us today, myself and others joined actress Catherine Heigl on Friday, July the 2nd on the court, uh, sorry, the Capitol steps at the state Capitol in Utah. Uh, we did a rally, had about 106 or seven people there. Great turnout, uh, really passionate group. We went out to see the Anaki horses after that and got to see that they were fat and sassy and good form with plenty of water and not starving as the Bureau of Land Management claims. Uh, We followed up this past Friday, Scott came all the way to DC and we did a rally uh, with a little over 20 people here, just three days notice right out in front of the White House. We were one of the first groups to be able to do this in 2021. 
And so I think we're getting our voice heard and getting the message across that we want President Biden to stop these terrible roundup. It's the only way we're going to save these horses. The buck stops with the president and it's in his hands. I don't think there's anyone else who can stop it but him at this point. So we continue to work on the legislation that we, of course, have been getting introduced in this Congress and leading the way on. Uh, the Mink Act that we'll talk about today is one, so I won't get into that. We'll save that for the bulk of the show, but we're still working very hard picking up steam with the Big Cat Public Safety Act. I think we're close to 200 co-sponsors now in the House. We believe that that's the bill that's probably going to get a vote before the August recess in Congress, at least in the House of Representatives, and we're pressing very, very hard for that. It passed the House last year in December, but we need to go in and get that vote so we have plenty of time to get this through the Senate because that's really been where our challenge lies with the Big Cat Public Safety Act. We're also getting a lot more momentum on the Bear Protection Act, the Greyhound Protection Act, the FDA Modernization Act, and we saw the Prevent All Soaring Tactics reintroduced in the U.S. Senate just a couple of weeks ago. It's the same version that's been introduced in the past. Of course, we're still working to try to achieve a compromise because that's, that bill as it stands uh, pretty much in zero chance of passing in the U.S. Senate. So we're still forging ahead with some people in the industry and some of the stakeholders in the mainstream equine and veterinary world to try to get something done on that front. A lot of new exciting things happening in 2021, but we're also fighting a lot of battles we've never had to fight before. And it's definitely made our work a bit more challenging this year. So we appreciate everyone's support. We'll keep pressing along and keep you posted on the legislative updates as things move. Um, thank you, Marty. That's awesome. Thank you. One, one critical question. Did Catherine Heigl ask about me when you were out there? She did. She was like, who is that guy with that sexy voice I listen to all the time on your podcast? That's nice. Thank you. I, but I think she might have been did. talking about Wayne. No, wait, wait. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> ouch all right okay fair enough fair enough no no wayne wayne has a great voice i mean uh, i think you have the better voice he has better hair you have a better voice he has better hair and he's a lot taller than i am but you know it's really interesting because when i edit these podcasts you can see people's voices right i mean it all you you watch and, and and all that and wayne's voice is always stands out from yours and mine because he is so even he's such an even speaker when you and i talk it's it's up and down it's it's like you know my having an ekg or something it's all up and down and crazy looking but with wayne it's just steady as it goes it's really it's an interesting phenomenon to to behold so at oh, any I, th- rate. I thought that was because we couldn't get a word in edgewise well he doesn't leave a lot of options <laughs> It's easy to pick on him when he's not here. And <laughs> I know, even, I know. And even really when he is here. So um, so thanks for that, Marty. Gosh, uh, again, it's just amazing the amount of, of work you guys do and just the, the number of balls you have in the air that you're juggling. So thank you. Uh, today, uh, to segue into the topic du jour, uh, we're going to be talking about minks, uh, most specifically about their relationship to the coronavirus. Uh, So far, the summer has had the feel of a ticker tape parade after a victorious war. To one extent or another, many in the West believe our battle with the disease is over, that vaccinations have done the trick, at least for those convinced of the science behind them, and that we are now in the clear. Uh, The ebullience may be premature. A story this morning out of California says that L.A. County recorded 2,000 cases in the last couple of days, a high not seen in months. Pfizer, warning of potential waning uh, efficacy of its vaccine over time, is developing a booster shot for recipients of its original one-two punch. Officials, scientists, and government officials alike are telling us not to throw away all of our masks just yet. 
And of course, all of this is against a backdrop where much of the world's population has yet to receive even its first dose. To quote Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over, and it seems whether we want to admit so or not, it ain't over by a long shot. Enter the mink. Our guest today was the lead author on a brand new report published by Animal Wellness Action in partnership for the Center for a Humane Economy. Here's the name of it, Mink Farming and SARS-CoVid-2, an examination of the science and scale of problems associated with mink farms. And there's a, a further subhead. Um, uh, Jim, do they pay you by the subhead? Like you get a head and then a subhead, then if you have a third subhead, does Wayne throw you a few extra bucks? They, they ran out of money after those two subheads, though. All right, good. You're good. So the final is uh, SARS-CoV-2 spillover to humans and wildlife, emerging new variants, and animal welfare problems for mink on intensive farms. Uh, so, uh, Jim, uh, glad you're here. Our guest is Dr. Jim Keen. Keen. Uh, he is uh, a veterinarian. He has a Ph.D., he earned his veterinary medicine and epidemiology doctorate degrees from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He was a senior veterinary researcher focused on livestock and zoonotic infections with the USDA Agricultural Research Service in Nebraska and later faculty at the University, University of Nebraska Lincoln School of Veterinary Medicine for 13 years. His specific expertise is emerging in zoonotic infectious diseases of farmed animals. Man, this is a, Jim, if you were a little less credentialed, you know, when I introduce myself, I, uh, Joe, and I do a podcast, that's easy to say, but, but you've got a lot of highfalutin words here. Uh, he is the Director of Veterinary Sciences at the Center for a Humane Economy. So, Jim, thank you for that. Uh, uh, I have the report. I've, I, I would like to say I've read all 90-something pages, but just like I did in high school, I went for the cliff notes, the executive summary, so that's as far as I got. I'm, I'm always honest. But what I read was really scary, and, and you can tell us the rest of it because you're here. We talked about minks a few episodes ago, actually maybe closer to the beginning of the pandemic, and how minks are just like this, this COVID, COVID machine, this COVID factory in some ways. Um, tell us about minks and the coronavirus. Well, most people don't know it about mink, but some I think they're more susceptible than people are, at least farm mink. It comes from two things. Mink... Mink and wild mink or domestic mink are just generally susceptible to infectious diseases. But farm mink, when you crowd them all together, they're normally a solitary animal. And you put them all together and they have the stress of being around thousands of mink that really don't like each other, being near each other, and an abnormal diet and um, abnormal environment. It just makes, and which results in immunosuppression, which makes a bad situation even worse with respect to COVID and other infections. Before we go any further, um, I think most people by now have heard it enough in the mainstream media, uh, the word zoonotic. Uh, give us a definition of what a zoonotic disease is, please. The zoonotic disease is an infection that uh, can transmit from an animal to a person. And the opposite, a reverse zoonotic disease is one that can go from, an, from a person to an animal. So in the case of COVID-19, people give it to mink and then mink give it back to people. So it's a it's a two-way bi-directional transmission phenomenon, which there's no other animal we know of on earth that does that. Right. So there's been some discussion, certainly it's, it's a hotly debated topic, whether uh, you know this originated in a lab in China or whether in fact it came from 
the, the wet markets or from animals even outside the wet markets. Your theory is that the mink may have been the animal to take it from bats to humans. Say more about that and if I, if I quoted you correctly. Yeah, that's not really my theory. That's one of the theories put forward by the WHO. They have put a study out, I think in February, a study of the, of the initial outbreak in Wuhan, China in um, fall or early or early winter 2019, I guess it was. So um, partly for lack of another explanation, they, the Chinese uh, government sampled something like 80,000 animals, couldn't find any evidence of uh, animal reservoir. One thing they didn't do is they did, for, for reasons unknown, they didn't sample. Let me step back for a second. China has large numbers of fur-farmed animals, mink, um, raccoon dogs, and some other species as well, foxes. Those are the big three. And it's hard to get, we, no one really knows the number of animals that they have. It's not like in the U.S. too, we don't, it's hard to know, get those numbers. Scott, what is the status of mink farming in the U.S. right now? Well, it's an industry that has clearly uh, been in decline uh, for, for many years now. Uh, really, uh, the, 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 the fur industry in general has, has been taking a precipitous decline really since the 80s. But I would say it's been uh, especially drastic uh, just in the past few years uh, with, um, you know, the, the price of the pelt just over a couple of years dropping from roughly $90 per pelt uh, for an American uh, mink uh, pelt uh, down to about $20. Uh, and the overall size of the industry uh, used to be almost $260 million uh, now under uh, $60 million uh, for in terms of the value of pelt sold. But I think that, uh, that, that the decline uh, can also be illustrated by where these pelts are being sold. Americans have largely sworn off fur as a luxury fashion item. And that means that there really isn't a market uh, in North America for American mink farmers to sell their product. That means that all or nearly all of the pelts being produced on American mink farms are going to China. So we are uh, raising these animals uh, on factory farm conditions uh, in conditions that uh, clearly give rise to the possibility of zoonotic transmission and reverse zoonotic transmission. Uh, for the sake of a very small segment of the Chinese population who does still regard fur as a luxury fashion item. So it's an industry that's in decline. It's, a, it's an industry that does not supply a domestic market. Um, and so this sort of, you know, amplifies the arguments for finally bringing this uh, industry to a close. And, um, and, you know, and the hope is, of course, that these uh, that these mink producers uh, will get into another line of work that doesn't involve the kind of risk and the kind of severe, you know, animal welfare suffering uh, and problems that we see on these on these large scale mink farms. Where, where, other than China, where are the larger markets? Now, I would I would guess, for example, if uh, Russia were a big market, um, they probably produce their own their own animals for that. Correct. I think that the Chinese mink farmers are probably celebrating uh, the, the outbreaks of the coronavirus in large mink producing countries like Denmark, because it means that they can boost their own production 
uh, and therefore their bottom line uh, and don't have to compete with with foreign mink pelts. But uh, Jim, do you want to do you want to uh, touch on that a little bit more in terms of the nations that have the biggest industries? Yes, uh, certainly, Scott. So we have to talk pre-COVID that things really changed, especially in Europe after the COVID outbreak. So there was about 60 million mink produced worldwide in 2019. And then, and before that, that was, and about 30 million of those mink came out of Europe. U.S. had about 3 million. So U.S. was about 5% of the world production. So we're small. And then, uh, so the big players would be Denmark, which culled their entire mink population, 17 million because of COVID. Number two and number three were Denmark and the Netherlands. They each had four to five million. So right there, you've got 17 and nine, you got 28 million. And then the smaller countries in Europe, kind of like the US, Greece, um, it's probably the next biggest one. China is the big unknown. They vary anywhere between five and 15 million over the past few years, but the numbers are unreliable, I guess would be the best word. Russia, there's no data on. I, my understanding is in Russia, they still trap a lot of their mink rather than fur farm them. And um, so those are the big, the big players, but we don't really know about, I agree with Scott, China is by now probably the largest producer in the world by far. And they're taking, the price hike was I believe about 40% after the Denmark coal. So um, some countries will take advantage of the loss of the European production. One of the dangers, um, Jim, you, you talk about in the report is the ability of the mink to generate variants. Um, talk about that a little bit. How does that work? And uh, what do we need to be on guard relative to this ability? Well, what happens with any virus when it goes into a new environment or a new species, it has to adapt. And in order to adapt, it mutates. It's not, a, it's not directed by the virus thinking, but it just has random errors when it replicates its RNA. And, it's, and there's been three known mink variants that have occurred. One was called the Cluster 5, which happened in uh, up first in Denmark and the Netherlands, which resulted in the youth or the culling of 23 million mink. The second cluster was, or the second mute variant was Marseille 4, which came out of France and spread worldwide. Um, and then the N401T, which occurred, these are mutations in the spike protein, I should have said that up front, which is where the vaccine acts. And the 501 N501T, which occurred in North America in the in the, in the U.S. and Canada. I'm I'm sorry, it showed up in Michigan, mink in Michigan and Wisconsin. Yeah, I think one thing that I wanted to be sure and point out from the legislative aspect of this is that the bill that was introduced last week was introduced with five Democrats and five Republicans on board, ten original lead sponsors. I don't think we've had that many on any of the new bills that we've introduced. And what's even more significant is that the lead sponsor in the House on the Democratic side is the chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee, Rosa DeLauro. So she controls the money in Congress. I think that's a, an important thing to think about with this. Her colleagues that joined in co-sponsoring with her on the Democrat side of the aisle are Chairman Raul Grijalva, who's chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, which is the committee where this bill has been referred. She also has uh, Congressman Peter DeFazio, who's chairman of the Transportation Committee on as an original co-sponsor, and Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, who's a subcommittee chair there in the Congress, along with Veronica Escobar, a Democrat from Texas. That's a very strong panel on the uh, left side of the aisle. On the right side of the aisle, 
you have a wonderful new congresswoman from Charleston, South Carolina, Republican Nancy Mace, who's joined in leading this. She has just taken the House of Representatives by storm, introducing numerous bills with us on the animal front. And then, of course, she was joined by a raft of other Republicans, Claudia Tenney from New York, uh, Lance Gooden, a Republican from Texas, uh, Mike McCall, a Republican from Texas, and David Valadeo from California. So it's a really well-rounded group of people that represent a vast array of folks across the country. And I just want to make sure folks understood how much support was there. And Joe, I, you know, I, I would say that, you know, I mean, people are concerned about this issue from a variety of angles. I mean, you've got the, uh, obviously, the public health angle, the concern that this is a species uh, that, uh, you know, that serves only a foreign luxury market, yet creates grave public health risks and the, the potential for perpetuating the pandemic, uh, you know, costing even more lives and, and even more uh, in terms of, of economic losses. So obviously that's a, a major point of concern, but then of course there are also the very serious animal welfare concerns. The fact that you, you, you're taking a wild species, uh, a carnivorous species that in the wild uh, is solitary and avoids uh, contact with other mink uh, and raising it in factory farm conditions, which creates just enormous stresses on the animals and results in all sorts of very serious animal welfare challenges like extreme aggression among litter mates, uh, cannibalism, infanticide, um, self-mutilation. I mean, you know, when I was, you know, growing up on my grandfather's mink farm in southern Idaho, uh, and my grandfather was a man who took the welfare of his mink very seriously, and I believe did absolutely everything right uh, from, the, from the standpoint of doing what you're supposed to do to raise healthy mink, I still, uh, you know, I saw things that were, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, unavoidable in terms of causing me to, to wonder about, you know, even as a child, you know, what I was seeing and, and you know, especially, you know, having to go around every morning and, and pick up the dead mink uh, who had been killed um, or badly injured by their litter mates. Uh, and, and, you know, and catch the mink that had escaped. Mink are notoriously good at escaping. And, um, and then, you know, I mean, uh, you know, animals that just uh, simply, you know, have, have uh, in, you know, are engaging in these stereotypy behaviors that are indicative of, you know, psychosis from intensive confinement. So again, you're taking an animal that lives a solitary lifestyle in the wild and cramming it into a factory farm uh, situation where it is, you know, surrounded by thousands of other mink, and obviously that's going to create, you know, serious animal welfare concerns. We think about uh, problems with animal welfare in other other factory farm settings, like, you know, uh, gestation crates on industrial pig farms, uh, and you know, battery cages for egg laying hens, where five or six hens are stuffed into a small uh, a small wire cage, or veal crates where newborn baby calves are uh, immobilized in crates and so small that they're not allowed to even move. Those are all terrible, terrible animal welfare situations. What makes mink farming even worse in my view is that it is still very much a wild species. It has been uh, genetically you know, modified for size and for pelt quality and for color, but they have not bred the wild out of the mink. And so we still see these terrible, 
these terrible consequences of taking an animal like that and, uh, and, and raising it on factory farm conditions, I think in many ways, it makes the animal welfare problems even worse than what we see on uh, the conditions for other factory farmed uh, animals like pigs and chickens and cows and that kind of thing. Right, and because they're so large when they escape, um, I'm assuming they can you know, e easily dominate the local population. I think, um, Dr. Keene, you, you refer to this in your report even, that they get out there and they can wreak havoc among uh, you know, the, the truly wild uh, mink population. Yeah, that's, that's correct, uh, Joseph. They're about uh, a mature, I'll call it domestic mink, even though they're really wilding, I'll call it captive mink. They're about twice the size, about eight pounds for a male, and a wild mink is about three pounds, so they're physically they're going to dominate uh, a wild mink. And, and mink will happen sometimes if, if an area has too many mink, well, mink will defend their territory to, to the death. If they lose their territory, they're going to die. They rely on that territory to support themselves. And follow up what Scott said, a mink territory minimally is going to be probably, they live along riverbanks or water edges, maybe the first 10 yards, because they spend half their life in the water. So a typical mink is going to be at least, say, 10 yards by 250 yards, smallest territory. So think of that. And in a cage, the recommendations from the U.S. Fur Commission is about one 1.5 square feet per mink, and usually often they'll two cages, two mink in a cage. So their cage is maybe up to a million times smaller than their natural territory, thousands to millions of times. So I can't imagine the frustration that they have being confined in those conditions with the other mink that they really dislike. Right. In your report, you write, uh, Congress should initiate legislation to ban mink farming as it poses a serious threat to human health. Absent a nationwide strategy, we risk worsening or prolonging the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, pretty strong language. Marty, is there any chance that mink farming will be banned? I think there's a very strong chance. I hear that the House Natural Resources Committee is going to move on this issue very quickly. If you want people in Washington, D.C. to take things seriously, start talking about COVID or an insurrection, and I promise you today they will. So I feel very confident about this. We could see it move with lightning speed. And when people, unfortunately, the human race is not only worried about animals, but they're worried about themselves. Of course, they seem to make it a much bigger priority. And um, uh, one, another part of the report, uh, Dr. Keene, should declare captive American mink an injurious species. Uh, what do you mean by injurious species and what effect would that have? I think I, I can make a comment, but I'd probably refer this to Scott or Marty. Um, there's a, a law, I guess, passed called the Lacey Act, maybe in 1990, and um, it allows the Fish and Wildlife Service to unilaterally, without congressional approval, to declare a species of animals as injurious if it affects animal health, human health, or ecosystem health. I'm not sure about that. Well, yeah, so the Lacey Act was actually passed the early part of the last century uh, to address the over-commercialization and over-hunting of wildlife. It was actually one of the, one of the, the, the main uh, situations that gave rise to the Lacey Act was the extinction of the passenger pigeon, which was a wild pigeon species that was so numerous that uh, the flocks would literally blot out the sun and people would go out and just kill passenger pigeons, you know, by the thousands as a form of recreation until all of a sudden pe people woke up and realized there were no more passenger pigeons. And at the same time, uh, you know, uh, there were these uh, wildlife markets uh, springing up where people would sell wildlife and wildlife products 
uh, from animals that were taken out of the wild uh, and then and you know turned into private profit. So uh, the Lacey Act was written to prevent that from happening, and the Lacey Act actually. Uh, is largely responsible for the system of wildlife management that we have in this country where you can only hunt under certain uh, conditions and uh, subject to certain regulations. And it really was designed to uh, ensure the uh, abundance and health uh, and variety of wildlife in the United States. One of the pieces that came along later uh, was this injurious wildlife piece, which said that uh, certain, uh, certain species, if they are introduced into the natural ecosystem, uh, can really cause a lot of damage. Uh, so for example, you know, a great example would be the Burmese python uh, in Florida, where people have taken their pet Burmese pythons and just turned them loose into the Everglades. And those, uh, those big constrictor snakes are just wreaking havoc with uh, a lot of you know, indigenous wildlife populations, including some very critically endangered species. So the, the uh, injurious species uh, provision in the Lacey Act is really designed to clamp down and try and remove species that when introduced into the natural ecosystem uh, are, are harmful to native species. So the idea here is to, with this bill, uh, declare captive American mink as an injurious species that cannot be uh, legally possessed or bought or sold uh, so that you, you, you remove the possibility of these, of these farmed mink, uh, which as Jim said, are, are much larger than, than uh, wild mink, uh, from escaping, which mink, farmed mink frequently do, and going into the ecosystem and uh, number one, possibly uh, spreading, you know, diseases like coronavirus to wild mink, but also, uh, you know, outcompeting them, uh, you know, risking the genetic variation and the genetic health of the wild population and so forth. Right. In your report, uh, Dr. King, you say regarding the Netherlands that mink farm workers infected about 68% of their family members. Uh, and then between May and September of 2020, up to 40% of human cases of coronavirus were mink-derived. Those are some pretty scary numbers. Yeah, that was that number of 40% of human cases, that was for the period in the summer of 2020. You have to remember the Netherlands and Denmark both have a relatively small human population compared to their mink population. That was based on a modeling because you can't tell for sure unless you actually sequence the virus and, and look for markers. But uh, it's probably fairly, uh, it's a reasonable uh, estimate, which is one reason I took it so seriously in both in terms of killing basically the 4 million mink in the Netherlands and the 17 million in Denmark, because I think it was, it was fair to say the mink posed a human, a severe risk to people, especially with the cluster five mutation. And one thing interesting is that there's in the report, um, one of the figures shows, um, which was hard for me to get this data, I put it together. If you look at the data, the human cases dropped precipitately as soon as they did the cull of the cluster five. So it shows that if you eliminate the mink as a source, um, then the human risk from that variant goes away. Uh, Dr. Keen, uh, Scott, Marty, we've done, I think, a, a frightening, terrific job of understanding uh, how the virus can go uh, rapidly among mink populations and then mutate inside those populations, come back to humans. 
but we are animal wellness action and and we're equally concerned as lovers of animals what these creatures go through on a factory farm environment let's help our listeners understand what life is like for these mink uh, notwithstanding any exposure to the coronavirus uh, joseph let me let me take the first swing at that just because i spent so much time as a kid uh, on and around uh, mink farms and, you know, observing the behavior of mink and, you know, thinking, you know, obviously, uh, you know, from a very young age, I was very, uh, you know, concerned about animal uh, suffering that I saw and, and cruelty toward animals. So uh, there was no doubt that I, even as a very young child, was able to identify, you know, that, that these animals were not happy. Uh, you know, we raised we raised beef cattle on our small farm in southern Idaho, and our cows were genuinely happy. I mean, they they were out on on pasture and and uh, you know allowed to to move around and graze and and be cows. And you know the the reality of life for a factory farm mink is basically you know extreme deprivation. Uh, this is an animal that is that is semi-aquatic that wants to be out there spending most of its time in the water. They are completely deprived of that. Uh, instead, they are kept in very small barren wire cages uh, in in barns with thousands and thousands of other mink. As as I've already said, they are in the wild uh, a a solitary species that avoids contact with others of its own kind, except for example to mate. Uh, and so what you see is you see extreme aggression. Uh, these animals are clearly, uh, you know, uh, very frustrated, very stressed out. And that manifests itself in the form of extreme aggression towards people, but also extreme aggression toward other mink. You know, in, in, there was an undercover investigation of a mink farm in Poland, and it was absolutely horrific to see. But to me, it, it just, you know, it showed exactly the very kind of thing that I observed on mink farms growing up. And, and Jim, maybe you can touch on that, Dr. Keene, uh, what, what we saw in that undercover investigation from Poland. Well, first I would say, just like with all factory farm animals, you cannot visit a factory farm, a mink farm in the U.S. or almost any place else. They claim biosecurity, which is probably a true risk, but also they don't want people to see what's going on. So we have to rely on undercover investigations for intensively reared animals. And uh, in 2018, there's a group called, it's called um, Open Cages, which is the animal welfare group in Poland. I think it's beyond that in other European countries as well. And they put out a, a short bit, well, there's more than one, but a short video, it's maybe four minutes long. And you can see those same things that Scott, uh, Scott described. The mink, um, first of all, running back and forth, the uh, biting the cages, biting the wire, um, running back and forth in the little cages that they have, self-mutilation, especially in the tail, the lesions that they see, they chew on the chew off their ears, uh, big lesions on the head, just raw skin. And there's one particular, and there's a link to this video in the report, by the way, uh, one particular one where a live mink, one of the cage mates, they basically disembowel it. It's very, yeah, very hard to watch. Yeah, I, and I think, uh, Dr. Keene, that, that, you know, that, then, then, you know, we talk about when you've got animals that are that stressed out uh, and that are living in that kind of unnatural environment, what does that do with the risk of zoonotic transmission? In other words, what we're really talking about today is the intersection between animal welfare and public health and how 
that you know that the, the the bad things that we do to animals can often come back and and uh, and cause negative consequences, you know, for people. And that's really to me that's that's really the you know the the most important point and purpose of Dr. Keene's report. Um, and so, Dr. Keene, maybe we talk about that. Like, let's talk about this intersection between animal welfare uh, and and how the the deprivation of captive mink you know, translates into an environment that, uh, that is more conducive to zoonotic transmission. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, Scott, the intersection of animal welfare and animal health. The way, the term I use in the report, I believe it's impossible to disentangle the two. You cannot have raised animals, and it's not just mink. I think it's true for other animals as well. There's a phenomenon in veterinary medicine, they use the term diseases of production, which means certain diseases are very common when you raise animals in intensive confinement, and they're very uncommon or, or, or never seen in extensive eared animals. You don't see in the wild, you don't see mink with their ears chewed off or their tails chewed off or being disemboweled by their uh, litter mates. So they're strictly phenomena of the way people force mink to live in just really unnatural, or I, call, I like to use the term denatured conditions. A mink cannot be a mink. And the visible things that we can see are those the stereotypical behavior, the cannibalism, the self-mutilation. But what we can see is the phenomenon of immunosuppression, where you can show it's invisible to us, but it manifests by diseases like COVID. But what's strange about mink, for example, is they can catch diseases from pigs, from people. They can catch avian influenza, because partly because they're, they're in such a poor immune state due to that high stress. We all know the more stress you have, the less your immune system functions. Scott, any follow-up? Well, I, I yes, and I, I think, uh, you know, li just listening to Dr. Keene uh, explain that, you know, it's it, it, it should be obvious to us. I mean, obviously there are, you know, there are sound animal welfare reasons to get rid of uh, mink farming. And there are sound public health reasons for getting rid of, uh, of, of mink farming. But when you put the two together, you know, they really do feed off each other and, and it really does create a vicious cycle. And, and again, I can't underscore this enough. Uh, all of this is for the sake of a, of a foreign market, a foreign luxury market. You know, this is not, you know, uh, putting, you know, food on, on anyone's table. This is not, you know, these are not animals being raised, you know, to be eaten. They're not animals uh, you know, that are, are being raised, you know, for example, to find cures for life-threatening diseases. These are animals being raised for fancy fur coats. And so the question becomes, number one, why are we doing this to the mink, right? Why are, why are we, why are we uh, allowing, you know, really abusive, uh, unhealthy environments, you know, factory farm conditions to raise these animals in? But then also, why are we doing it to people? Why are we uh, why are we accommodating this very grave and very serious public health risk for the sake of a product that is nothing but a, a, a luxury item for a foreign market? Uh, if we finally shut down the cruelty of industrial mink production, uh, then what we are going to be doing is removing a major potential super spreader operation uh, a, an operation that poses the threat of prolonging the pandemic uh, and, and ultimately 
uh, preventing people from dying and preventing all of the harsh economic consequences that we've seen, uh, you know, that we've had to deal with, you know, for the past, you know, year and a half. Dr. Keen, uh, Scott, uh, so let's talk about uh, the people who are doing the farming. Do we have a sense for how many family-owned mink farms there are? Are these all corporations? Are the U.S.-owned corporations? If we were to ban mink farming, what what is the human toll in terms of jobs and, and livelihood? That, I mean, that's certainly a concern to the people who might be listening to this podcast who know someone who puts bread on the table by, by farming mink. I tried to find information on that in the process of writing that report, and it's really scant information on the whole industry. So we don't even know. They're, they're big. For the most part, mink farming is unregulated, at least pre-COVID. They were considered agricultural in most states, but there was no, the state didn't regulate them in any way. So the numbers, we don't even know the number of active mink farms there are. We think it's, Scott maybe addressed this better, maybe 100 or so, and they may produce this year maybe 2 million mink, but it's really, it's really fuzzy. We don't even know where they are, um, where those mink farms are specifically. So, and as far as how many people are employed by it, what I've read is that the smaller ones tend to be family owned. There's some larger ones in Wisconsin that may have 50,000 more mink. And some of those, those are more corporate owned um, farms. So you have a sort of like analogous to the, to the livestock farming. The larger ones tend to be corporate owned and the smaller ones family owned. For example, the Oregon Department of, of Agriculture uh, lists uh, 12 fur farms still active in the state of Oregon. And yet after the coronavirus outbreak, uh, we heard from the Department of Agriculture that fewer than, that there were actually only about five of them still in active production. Um, Idaho, for example, uh, once had a thriving mink uh, industry. Of course, that's the state I grew up in. And I actually, our next door neighbors were the largest mink farm in all of Idaho. Uh, owned by uh, uh, the, the same family, and that family has killed 90% of their mink and are holding on to just a remnant breeding population in case uh, the, you know, the coronavirus uh, issue is resolved and, and, and there is sort of a renewed uh, appetite for, you know, for, for mink. But, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to track, but, but our best estimate based on the data that we've collected is probably fewer than 100 farms nationwide uh, with many of these uh, operations employing five or fewer employees. Uh, so we're not talking about a huge uh, number of people. We're not talking about a huge number of farms. Um, we're talking about a relatively small and very insular population of people engaged in this industry. Uh, and, and again, the, the, these are, these are uh, producers that have really been under siege for quite some time uh, in an industry that is dwindling and in a market that is dwindling. Uh, prices have plummeted. And, uh, and so it's become harder and harder for these folks to make ends meet. And, um, you know, so in many ways, you know, the, this federal mink bill is really hastening what is already taking place. All right. Marty, do you have any um, unshared thoughts yet regarding the mink bill that you want to uh, make sure we address? Well, I think, you know, the most important thing, as always, is that the listeners out there contact their members of Congress and they ask them to co-sponsor this legislation. It's really important. Um, it's the Mink Our Super Spreaders Act. And we would really love it if you all would call 202 
202-224-3121. That's the House of Representatives and ask them to co-sponsor the Mink Our Super Spreaders Act led by Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. We don't have a Senate bill yet, so just contact the House members and we really appreciate it. All right. And uh, Dr. Keene, I'll, I'll throw it to you for, for final thoughts. One interesting aspect is the difference between how Europe has responded with the mink and COVID than we have. As I said, they've culled more than 20 million mink. And even Poland, which is the current largest one, they had sort of a, a resolution July 1st to ban mink farm within the EU. And, and this both for animal welfare, and they stated both for animal welfare reasons and for the COVID. And versus we have much more, re- and that's much bigger industry and probably thousands of people employed there compared to a few hundred maybe in the US. And yet their response is, is I think it's a much more reasonable one. So hopefully uh, Marty is right and this bill can succeed. Uh, Scott, where can people find uh, this report? It's very accessible. It, it's nicely illustrated. Um, it's a very user-friendly report, I think, for anyone, who, and I think most people should care about this issue. Where can they find it? Uh, go to www.animalwellnessaction.org and you will see uh, links to the report on our website uh, and you can you can read it, you can download it, uh, you can share it out. Uh, it's it's uh, eminently readable, even though it is, you know, of course, you know, packed with uh, scientific data and information. It is very readable and very accessible uh, even to a non-scientific person. So again, uh, www.animalwellnessaction.org. Uh, and look for the link uh, for Dr. Keene's mink report. Our, our guest has been Dr. Jim Keene. Uh, he co-authored or was the lead author of a report jointly produced by Animal Wellness Action and the Center for a Humane Economy. Uh, Scott, thank you for joining us. Always so informed. Marty, you, got, uh, you guys are just great, so thank you for that. And thank you to our listeners who uh, tune in to our show. We appreciate that. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alert. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.